Welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And we like to look at movies and see them. And one of us has seen them before. And we like to talk about how they hold up. Yeah, that kind of a situation. Right. One of those deals. <laughs> well, Dan, I'm sick. Uh, you're old. We were just talking about that. <laughs> it's all happening for us. I'm the pinnacle of health. And I don't look a day over 52. <laughs> A uh, happy uh, day after your birthday. Thanks. Dan, did you see anything this week? I don't think I did. Really? Other, than, first... our, other yeah. than our topic film, you haven't watched anything. <laughs> no, I did. I did see the topic film. I watched the Tonys last night. Yeah. That's what I was up to. I bet you've got a Dan take on that. You know, less than you might think. I, I haven't followed it as closely as when I lived in New York, you know, obviously. And so I had a, an idea of kind of what was nominated and what's favored to win. The broadcasts are kind of, what, what's the word for it? We live in this era now where everyone needs to make a statement about their own wokeness or about their productions, woke intentions. Uh-huh. And that becomes kind of a bore. And, and meaningless unless you have a little something more to say about it. I felt kind of there was this, um, is pallor the word of like a thing that hangs over it that you don't like? Yeah, sure. Um, over the proceedings of like, yeah, we aren't good TV shows like everybody likes. That's most right. of the jokes. We're, we're this live theater, this irrelevant thing, and nobody wants to tune in, and nobody wanted to tune into the Oscars either. So, what chance do we have? And so, it makes Hooray, so the, showbiz. Right. So, the whole thing is like how much this thing we're here to celebrate sucks, and that nobody cares about it. But of course, people who have tuned in care about it. This yeah. is our big night. And for everyone to just kind of get up and talk about how their piece is somehow subversive and how we have to be strong in this terrible era. I mean, part of that's true, but everything that's the theme. Yeah. I, fi- I just found it kind of depressing rather than joyful. Yeah. I heard that the awards themselves were kind of clockwork. Yeah. Clockwork. There wasn't anything super exciting. And by by way of the performances, to me, the two shows, the two musicals that won were the most exciting. Town had a really cool uh, production concept going on. I would want to see that show for sure. Oklahoma is a show that I just loathe and hate. And yet that performance had a lot of energy and it looks interesting and fresh and that they just took that script and score and changed everything else. Yeah. Hey, you know, that's great. Our our friend and classmate, Meredith Lindsay, I believe she's a producer on Hadestown. Oh, really? She was uh, Instagram storying from inside the, the room at the ceremony. Oh, well, that's cool. I didn't, I, I'm not entirely sure I know who that is. Oh, you don't remember uh, Meredith? She's uh, she was sixteen when she came to to college. She was kind of a whiz, and she knew even then that she wanted to be a producer. She was stage manager on a few shows, but I think by the I'm thinking by the time of Thief, she was gone and came back to visit. So, I guess I assumed that you would have been at the same moment as her, but I guess you just missed each other. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was the Tonys, and I enjoyed it because I enjoy the Tonys. Yep. But I'm looking forward to a new era where, one, we're not self-conscious about what we're here to celebrate and also not preoccupied by daily terror that we feel right. that each artistic step we take is somehow railing yeah. against. 
yeah, we need some kind of like decorum back and some corporate Democrats in charge so we can pretend that the world's not a horror show. <laughs> right. And we can get bawdy and fun again in our entertainment. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> I saw four things, but I'm gonna, I feel oh, kind of weird ticking off a list well, that long. No, I want you to do that and I'll offer my commentary okay. and tell you when you're wrong. Okay. Okay. Good. That's why I that's why I come to this weekly appointment. Yeah. Uh one of them is just a rewatch. I showed Gloria Bell to Shireen. I forgot if you caught up on that one. No, I haven't seen it. Okay. It's on it's out on video. Stream it, watch it. Uh it's so great. I loved it even more the second time. It's a perfect little movie. I really hope it's not overlooked when award season comes around. Shireen I, my wife just doesn't like movies as much as me. Uh, that's just, you know, our our situation to navigate. But uh, we get we have we share much else in common, so that's fine. But she was reacting to it and laughing and shocked. And then it was over. She was like, eh, I just don't really like movies. So, I mean, that's interesting. I don't really know her style or what she likes. But I do feel like if you really like something, I feel she's less likely to like it. Yeah. Yeah, although I wasn't obnoxious on this one. I was not like, you're going to love this, sit there, and then staring at her while she watched it. It was in a stack of things, and she picked it out. And uh, I just said, yeah, it's it's good. We watched 8th grade, and she loved that. But mm. it also had the perk of being relevant to her career and being right. shot in Rockland schools that she recognized. Uh, but that's a, just another, that's a, a re-recommendation for me for Gloria Bell. Terrific. Well, maybe I, maybe I'll check that one out. It's a great meditation on middle age. You're creeping closer, you know. You're, you're, <laughs> oh, I'm middle age. Whole year closer. <laughs> this is middle age. I remember Don Draper and Madman goes to the doctor, and he's 36 and in horrible health. And the doctor's like, "Well, you're well into middle age now, sir. You need to start taking care of yourself." I was like, "Oh no!" Right. And I remember I, I go back and watch old Simpsons episodes, and they'll make references to Homer being 38, and I just remember that right. being that's like the end of your life. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing to hope or live for at that point. Right. I mean, he's got like a 10 year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not like he's 50 or it's yeah. not like you can't have a 10 year old when you're 50, but you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. typical person, if your oldest kid is 10, then yeah, maybe you're in your late thirties, right. early forties. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Dan, we talked about it last week. I saw it. Is it as good as King Kong, the musical? Uh, with, I mean, I with a big both, puppet, we, we both know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> How could it be? Uh, it was good, dumb fun. Uh, had a lot of monsters. It was a it was a spectacle without being headache inducing. It was it was fine. I do have a beef with the franchise, though. Godzilla, you know, like the like the best monsters out there. Godzilla started as a cautionary, you know, metaphor the dangers of atomic power coming back uh, upon us right in the form of this towering you know kaiju uh now by this point in the franchise they're literally and mild spoilers for stuff that happens in godzilla king of the monsters whatever they're literally lobbing nukes at him to wake him up and bring him back to life it's like popeye <laughs> with spinach now they're just feeding him nukes to get him ready for the big fight at the end it's crazy he likes nukes. Yeah. <laughs> How are the visuals? Is it really murky and dark and you can't quite tell what you're looking at? That's my that's my beef with a lot of movies like There's that. There's some of that. And it's very frustrating that in this movie I did notice that 
all, I think every single fight is in a storm or a fog or a, or in the clouds or something. And I don't really get that at this point. I know that they used to hide the flaws in computer animation with things like rain and smoke and stuff. But, uh, you know, this is 2019. I would, I was thinking that I would like one of these battles to be in the sun, uh, in a meadow. Yeah. Show me some of these, you know, faces and textures and things. So yeah, that is an ongoing issue though. I do. I did like that. The monsters have personalities. You can track what's happening. The, the human drama gets really, really rote and boring, but the monster stuff is done well enough that it didn't devolve into like a Michael Bay Transformers kind of a mush. But yeah, that is a, that is a real complaint. Yeah, it doesn't seem like Godzilla needs to hide themselves. Yeah. Why, why not be out on a perfectly good day where you can see Godzilla? What, right. is, what is the hiddenness add yeah. to it? Well, there's one monster this time, uh, which is a, a classic monster. This is a lot, all the classic Japanese monsters are, are are coming back into this movie universe, and one of them, King Ghidra, is an alien with three heads, and it literally like creates storm fronts that you, that it uses to travel from place to place. So, anytime there was a fight involving that monster. There's rain and lightning and clouds and stuff. And then they're in Antarctica for part of it. They're under the ocean for a different part of it. So what are you going to do? I'll probably go to Godzilla at some point. You think so? Oh, totally. (laughs) It's a good good dumb time. Uh, Then I streamed two titles that I was catching up on from last year. Halloween 2018. The David Gordon Green and Danny McBride reboot a remake, I don't know, a restart of the Halloween franchise with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And I kind of hated it. Oh. Uh, it was very disappointing. I like David Gordon Green as a uh, director. Makes weird, interesting things. And I thought that he and Danny McBride would breathe some new life into this. Uh, it's not a franchise that I'm really... I've only seen the first Halloween. I went on kind of a, of a bender last year with um, Friday the 13th movies. Watched all of them because I had a podcast to listen to along with them but i never really got into halloween so i don't have any like nostalgia or lore or anything like that i just watched it as a movie and uh, it was boring i probably will skip that one i felt bad because they they do all these uh, i feel bad for curtis because they do all these things and they you know these definitive big reboots and they felt like they wanted to give her a shining moment and then they didn't really give her anything good or interesting to do yeah, that's too bad because she brings a lot to whatever she's in yeah and uh, Judy Greer is in it as her daughter, too. Oh. So that's two actors I very much enjoy watching uh, in a stupid movie. Uh, oh, and then I finally saw Bad Times at the El Royale. Oh, okay. I rather enjoyed it. Yes. I did. And I feel like I've been uh, giving yes. so many lukewarm reviews to new things lately. I had a great time watching that movie. Isn't it enjoyable and fun? It is. I definitely have critiques, but overall it was sure. just refreshing and enjoyable and weird. And the pacing, my, my two nitpicks would be that the pacing was uneven and I felt like it lacked a big revelation that kind of brought all those weird stories together. Yeah, it didn't have that at all. No, but it's a very fun ride and it had clever plotting and surprises and a great cast and just a weird, a weird world that it created. Yeah, I'm not sure why the story needed to be told, but I I sure enjoyed the ride. I thought it was yeah. visually interesting, and there they were characters who I liked spending time with. 
it was unexpected. Some of the things that happened. I mean, what a what a dumb review for a movie. Sure, so, and some of the things that <laughs> happened were unexpected. Like but <laughs> it's because so so often they are expected, right? And they're like every other movie you've seen. Yeah, the character payoffs in the end seem kind of arbitrary. These people win. These people die. Whatever. But it just felt like an exercise in trying in taking a swing. People compare it to Tarantino, like it's a, a Pulp Fiction type of a thing, and I think so. But I felt a little more warm and sentimental than Tarantino to me. Oh, I mean, for sure it was. I feel like there isn't any warmth to be found in Tarantino yeah. at all. Yeah. So yeah, there's a recommendation from me. Stream it it's on HBO this month. Check it out. Sounds good, and I'll be back in my normal movie going rhythms this coming week sure sure i'm didn't... seeing uh book smart again wednesday night okay and then men in black international on thursday night. oh no no you know it's our responsibility to cover all these big uh event movies right is that, is that part i of what guess we do? so what's coming out this weekend i don't know and i'm confused because things look like they're coming out and then they go i reserved a ticket through the amc app for late night on Wednesday, where when I am now going to see Booksmart again because my they they dropped the movie. What? And it's still showing up in my list of tickets, but when I tap on it, it says details unavailable. And when I go to the showtimes, the movie's gone. That's unacceptable. Yeah. All right. So looking at my app right now, I see The Secret Life of Pets mm. and Dark Phoenix, which Ooh. I know, which I half thought about going to just because it looked really bad. Yeah. Um. I do see late night listed for this weekend. I don't want to go to Aladdin. Like that's just not who I am. Yeah. And maybe I'll go to Godzilla and Rocket Man. Like I should just. I, I need to do Rocket Man like homework. I, I really do need to see it. <laughs> Ma. For some reason, I would normally be drawn to a movie like this, but mm-hmm. there's something about it that just repels me. I don't want to see that story. I don't want to watch teenagers violated i don't want to watch octavia spencer playing this role i mean she's wonderful i'm sure she brings you know as as much as she can do you know it's from the director of the help oh is it yes jesus yeah it it just looks like a slog even though it's it's only an hour and a half yeah it just looks i feel that i it looks like one of those movies where just no one says the things that need to be said in order not to go through the mechanisms of the plot. The the kids need to say what's going on and say what's happened. And when the parents, and I don't know anything about the movie and I know these things. And when the parents come to discover that something's wrong, they don't speak up. And it just allows everyone to come to this horror climax. It seems like Octavia Spencer is just getting revenge on her former classmates' children, which is something I'm not interested in watching. And it's the kind of thing that on paper might sound juicy for a prestigious actor like herself to to sink their teeth into, but I'd kind of rather see her do something more valuable. And I like dumb genre movies. I had a great time at Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day 2 last year. But uh, I'll I'll take in a trashy genre movie sometimes. But this kind of weird new brand of sleazy but kind of elevated you know, we get like a we we draw in a big name actor with the promise of doing something twisted. And I'd rather see those energies spent somewhere else. Right. I would rather watch an actual psychological drama or thriller 
that took place a little bit more in the real world of what if quite by accident you found yourself having violated a boundary and having access to the children of people you're angry at. If you're not a true sociopath, you you probably wouldn't harm these children. But perhaps seeing a little bit of your inner life of that struggle and turmoil of what your worst base fantasies would be versus being an actual normal, respectable person in the world. I think something like that is interesting and kind of menacing rather than just how can we get children trapped and then, you know, torture them and then try to get the upper hand on their parents. I I, I just don't want to watch that. I hear that. Yeah. That that would be far more interesting. Thank you. I want to see your movie, Dan. (laughs) Maybe I just haven't written my movie yet. That must be it. Who's going to be your high-profile lead? <laughs> I wish I had a smart answer for that. Jack A? I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, you don't know Jack A? No. All right. Well, she was the sassy star of the sitcom 227 back in the 80s. <laughs> She's still around. She's good at Twitter. No, what you're talking about. All right. Well, your homework, your homework <laughs> during the break is to Google Jack A. All right. Uh, All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and talk about Life is Beautiful and my complicated feelings thereabout. Welcome back. Dan, talk to me about Life is Beautiful. All right. So Life is Beautiful is a 1997 Italian comedy drama. It is categorized by Wikipedia. It is directed and starring, of course, Roberto Benigni, who co-wrote the film. And I saw Life is Beautiful just around that beautiful time of adolescence where your world is starting to open and there are movies out there. And you go to the art house with some of your friends and you feel cool because you saw something that you heard about before anybody else has heard about it. And so I really was taken with this film the first time I saw it. I liked the look of it. I liked the cleverness for where I was at in life as far as how my world or politics or historical viewpoints were shaped. I thought it was a clever and oh so different take on this material i loved the score um i thought it came to a conclusion that i found to be really emotionally moving and i was into the oscars that year that was one of the first years i really followed and i loved how well that it did Hmm. um benini won uh for best actor in addition to um for foreign film And my local video store had a competition where you filled out an Oscar ballot. And I remember putting Benini as a Best Actor winner. And that choice was one of the reasons I won second prize. And like five free rentals. I know. And I should have gone with Shakespeare. Life is beautiful. Yeah, it really was. The guy who was the kind of the manager there, he was like, it's going to be Shakespeare in love. And I just... Didn't listen to him. <laughs> well, what is your history with this movie? 
somewhat similar, although without the deep enthusiasm, uh, <laughs> in that I was aware of it. I don't think I saw it in a movie theater. I think I saw it on probably on VHS. Wow. Um, with some friends, kind of a similar thing of, you know, being cool and watching a subtitled movie. I don't remember if we were out ahead of it. I don't think we were though. It was probably a phenomenon already at that point. Uh, so I remember at the time, yeah, I think similar to you though, I did, uh, react to it as if I was seeing something special and I was understanding something special. I was privy to something cool, even though everybody was, I think I was at an age where I was longing to feel grown up and like I could get a grown up movie and even a foreign movie and a foreign movie about, you know, this subversive take on this type of material. So, uh, I guess in that sense, similar, I didn't hate it. I guess I'm having trouble accessing how I used to feel about it. Cause watching it again, I have very complicated thoughts about it, positive and somewhat negative. What was it like for you, Dan revisiting life is beautiful now? I continue to have a special place for this movie and it's totally my nostalgia for it that interrupts what my better instincts would think if I saw this movie today. Uh I'd probably be completely offended by its handling of the subject matter. Um, I'm dismissive of Benini's own take on it where he says, well, this is a fable. This isn't the Holocaust. This is just something like the Holocaust. Uh You know, and I'm just like, no one who is watching this movie thinks that that's what you're trying to do. Right. No one thinks that that's offensive yeah. that you, th- you know, and he is not Jewish himself. Right. His father. You better believe um, I looked that up. I mean, within 10 minutes right. of watching it. Right. And he feels that since he consulted some Jewish groups or something and got their apparent stamp of approval that he's okay. And I get that it's it was ninety seven. It wasn't today. You don't. He didn't have the Twitterverse to deal with. Can you imagine right. if this were released today? Right. Can you imagine it? This would be uh, another loquitia. <laughs> I mean, it, it would have gotten buried with with negative press from woke Twitter, right? And I think too that his father was in the Italian army and actually did spend time in a concentration camp. And I think, why not tell that story? Right. That, that is, you know, kind of peripheral to um, what the, who the Holocaust was, you know, targeting, but that was a real story of, you know, a man who was in the Italian army and then was taken to one of these camps. That makes a little sense. And you'd also be honoring your father but instead he wanted to go in this direction and clownishly so. Yeah. I love I continue to love the filmmaking. Some people don't like it. They don't like the look. They think it's flat or unprofessional. There's something about it that to me is so lush and so different looking and colorful. Um especially the first half. I mm-hmm. find that to be just enchanting. Like when he like throws that carpet down the stairs and the long shot of it yeah. going I I love that. Um, I think that he, his character, that is an extension of him, really, is just insufferable. Yeah. I, I don't like who he is at all. And he's creepy with uh, Dora, who is actually played by his wife. And I don't like how he treats her and how he feels entitled to her attention and shows up at her job and 
asks her unprofessional questions when he asks other people professional questions. Right. And then shows up as her uh, fiance, but actually it's him in the car and doesn't take her right back. And so, and there's, there's a certain charm to me about the, the silliness of the coincidences that are engineered that make mm-hmm. it look like there's some universal force pulling them together. I did like though, at the party, her engagement party, where he is there as a waiter, that isn't him being creepy. He actually worked at that place and didn't know she was one of the guests of honor when she comes in. And she has kind of been given over to his you know, supposed charms by this point. I love when she sees the cake and all of a sudden like has hope and just kind of looks out around the room and the music kind of swells. And I yeah. love when she goes under the table and that shot of her in the dress crawling toward him at the other end. Yeah. And, you know, says, take me away to me that that is like it, it makes me my knees weak. I, I love that nonsense. Yeah. You know, I I, th- I think yeah. that's that's beautiful and it's completely silly, of course, but yeah. and over dramatic. But I love that. And then when they go back to the house and he's like trying to make arrangements and figure everything out, but she's just silently casually walked into that greenhouse. And then that's yeah. just kind of where they leave the era. I love that whole sequence. Yeah. So, yeah, putting the meta stuff aside, I might have more to say about that, but talking about it as a movie, as we're doing now, I agree with a lot of what you just said. That whole sequence of the engagement party up until the stuff with the family pre-bad stuff uh, is where the movie wins me over, and then later it has to win me back again. But (laughs) I do, I agree, I find his character so insufferable and so obnoxious, especially in the first 20 minutes or so, when he's just kind of this chaos monster following his appetites around and if that was just if it was just like a little comedy film about this crazy character okay fine but you kind of go into it expecting this grand thing just because of the way it's presented and the reputation and all that i just am like this is the guy and then the pursuit of her is kind of like you say problematic but then it, it it becomes so sweet and it all comes together in a way that i have to admit it wins me over and by the time they are a happy little family I'm into it. I like it. I love the score. I love the the kid actor. The, the kid is wonderful. He's adorable and delightful. The the colors in their home, that whole it's only a brief sequence there where they're chasing him around trying to get him to have a bath. But to me that's the height of that movie. I want to kind of live in that world. Yeah, um, I I really like their family a lot and like like you say it it wins me over like the brutalist uh architecture of that hotel everything is heightened a question that i have i mean i know this film was popular in italy but i feel like part of the reason people went with his performance was because they didn't understand the language that Mm. they don't know what his inflection is they don't really know what his line reading is we're just hearing italian and we're seeing expressions and as i read the translation i happen to love the script but i'm reading a translation of it i wonder i'm trying to imagine an actor using his facial expressions and inflections to express the words that I'm actually reading. And I cannot imagine a performance like that. Yeah. It would be so distracting and he'd be so painfully unlikable. I'm imagining like someone like Martin short in Clifford or something like that, playing this character. And he's just so annoying. Yeah. I actually, out of curiosity and only for a few moments turned to the uh i discovered i do own this movie on blu-ray i had no idea Mm -hmm. but i switched to the english language track for just like a a minute 
towards the beginning of him him and his is it his brother as their know. his companion as they're traveling around and they've got english voices now it is dubbed so it's not maybe the best test of what you're talking about but even so it seems ridiculously over the top and there's something about reading the subtitles and taking it in that way that i think does make it a little easier to swallow yeah there really needs to be something lost in translation i think right. it does take it down for the audience a couple notches though it was popular in italy yeah well then we move into the second half of the film and this is where it loses me hard before it wins me back a little at the very end but i just felt uh and i want to hear your take on all this i just felt like in order for the concentration camp material to work as a juxtaposition with this kind of crazy uh happy-go-lucky you know for all of that of his magic little kookiness to come in and juxtapose successfully i feel like the world of the camp has got to be as heavy and real as possible and i don't feel like it is i feel like the people in the concentration camp are they look like extras they act like extras they're quiet and they stand back and let roberto benini do his bits in situations where they wouldn't behave like that they'd tell him to shut up that's just one quibble in the filmmaking but my biggest thing is and i'll I'll let you talk before i move into this area but my biggest issue is in his relationship with his son and the central thing of the whole movie which is how he creates this magical lie for his kid and that kind of pushes some buttons for me but what's your feeling in general just about the whole shift to the second half of the movie it's one of those things that obviously the the second half is the crux of the movie. That's the reason why it was being made. If you wanted to make a light comedy about courting this woman and then their quirky family life, then that could have been like an Amelie-esque movie. Um, clearly, they wanted to get to the camp. That was the point. And the only way for the camp sections to work or to understand what he's trying to do is to have taken this lengthy journey with him to see that we're not quite living in reality. He lives on a different sort of a plane. He sees life through a different lens. His clownery is his weapon to get what he needs in life, really. And we've had to take this journey with him in order for anything to to land in the next sequence. And I'm not totally sure that it does. I agree with you completely that it really silences the victims of the Holocaust They are props. They are off to the side. It's almost as if he is invisible to them living on his own plane. Like when the guard comes in and he doesn't translate properly. I I mean, why in the world wouldn't they have someone who could speak Italian? Right. That's ridiculous. Prepared to give this. The prisoners themselves go along with it. It makes no sense. Right. Why in the world would they go along with this? And then, oh, this other guy. Oh, he knows. He'll tell you everything. No. This guy would have been called out, put out. I hate when he's trying to hold the anvils and he can't quite get there as if we're supposed to be seeing the camp's horrors in this situation. It's like a cartoon gag. Yeah. Right. It didn't make any sense to me. And the horrible difficulties, the backbreaking work and not getting enough food and not being warm enough and all of the pain that the people in this camp endured up till the time that many of them died is completely glossed over it's just to him a game yeah that in the end is my biggest objection what i want to say about 
him and the, and the kid. This is some of this is me. This is not all on the movie because the movie has its conceit and it is what it is. But you know from our discussions before that I have kind of this thing about children in movies and, and this idea of lying to children. So when I saw the movie Room, it absolutely like devastated me emotionally. The idea of creating this alternate reality for a kid to help them survive a traumatic experience. And I understand that that is, that is the, the substance of this story. That's what it is. Um, but there's something about completely lying to the son and in effect, promising him things that cannot be and telling him, Oh, the other kids are just hiding. You're going to win just because the contrivances of the plot make it all work out. That doesn't justify it. And again, it's insulting to all the people who didn't have some kind of a magical experience when they were in the actual Holocaust. Uh, That all just left me with a very sour taste. I agree. I I mean, in that way, the second half plays as the first half where everything needs to work out like clockwork by a series of unbelievable coincidences in order for what he's putting forth to this kid to work out. And then I wonder, why did he do this? Why is it less traumatizing to go through the exact same situation not knowing the truth? I feel like he spends a lot of time and energy trying to get the kid to go along with the lie. Whereas if the kid has survived this long and you're just telling him to hide, waiting things out, why not tell the kid the truth Mm -hmm. that we're in a horrifying, very dangerous situation. This is life or death and we're going to do our best. And it requires you to hide yourself and be quiet rather than telling him it's a game. Yeah. And I don't, I may have missed it, but is there a moment where Guido has a moment alone as an adult where he can like vent and have a, you know, like a breakdown? He's just this kind of magical cartoon character and that he's always on and he always has the next bit ready to go. At least show him buckle a little bit and have to turn away and bite his fist at least. To have to keep that up for the sake of a child that you love seems like it would have an emotional toll. Yeah, I think that that's what they were trying to, uh, that's what he was trying to accomplish in that anvil scene where that's like his time away and we're going to die here and this is terrible and all of this stuff. But you're right. You don't have that. The only moment like that is the moment where he's carrying him back from that event with the other children Mm. and they come to that kind of mass grave in the mist Yeah, where I feel like he has, I mean, though he's carrying his child, the child's sleeping And he just kind of has this moment of realization and seeing the weight of everything that's happened here. Um, I don't know if it's more or less effective that when the guard led him away, ultimately, before he's shot, that we see that or we don't. What's his final expression? What's his final understanding? Right. He just kind of goes behind a wall as this clown. It really is through his son's eyes because his son didn't see it. Right. So it's kind of like everything that all of this is memory or at least the family lore of how mom and dad met and what happened in this camp because the son doesn't really see anything horrifying. Yeah. One th- one thread in the plot that I really actually appreciated from a dramatic standpoint, and it's a very small thing, but I would have liked maybe some more stuff like this, was the subplot with the riddle man who mm-hmm. you know, they kind of plant that seed early in the movie that this guy lo- enjoys riddles and loves Guido's riddles. And then he's a guard in the camp and there's this opportunity. You think that he's going to be helpful and he calls him over and then he just wants to talk about a riddle. I found that so deflating and, and truly devastating that I would have liked 
some more actual human stuff like that in the movie instead of just the constant performative little bits from from Benini. Yeah, I agree. I I I think that's an effective moment and I do wish that we got to see a little bit more of his inner turmoil and maybe self-doubt or a, a moment where he might even think he's going to abandon the whole plan or something like that. I don't know about the relationship with he and his wife. Um it, it's it's unlikely that they would have been permitted to marry in that social climate at all. Mm. Um, but that she would be insisting on getting on that train, I guess that's her whole world. But what does she know what she's facing? Does she think she's going to get out alive? Does she think that they're just going to be there and live in some, you know, camp housing as a family? Right. Why in the world did she insist on getting on that train? Yeah. Do we only know that on this side of history that that was a bad idea? Again, everything's simplified, and I think in the end, the answer is going to be that these are the child's memories, and so everything is cartoony and everything is extremely simplified. But it's hard its hard to track with it sometimes then. It's hard to get into it deeply, and it almost seems inappropriate to have cartoonish memories and, and storytelling around something like this. Well, it's, it's entirely inappropriate. I wonder what a different movie it would be if instead of making it a lie— um, he, he tried to just lead his son in some sort of fantasy or positive thinking. Like to hear Benini talk about it, I can kind of go along with him. Where he's talking about this is the love of the parent that holds on because we just kind of have this faith that life is somehow going to be better for our kid than it was for us. We hold on in impossible circumstances to try to help move a new generation forward, even when things seem hopeless. Yeah. And I can see that in this movie. And that's a, that's a truth in the human experience. Yeah. I, I don't know why it was necessary in this screenplay right. to base it all on a lie. Cause we say, well, this is a fable. And I'm thinking, well, a fable meaning what, right. what, what do we right. learn from this? So even just a small, just a small extra layer in the, in the screenplay, where they they discover the horrors of the camp, but then he says, "Come, come with me, Josue. Come with me, and, and let's th- think with me. What if it was like this?" And then he weaves this fantasy for him so they can escape that way, right? And some of that is weaved into the visuals, you know, or imagining what life is going to be when we get home, or imagine what mom's doing right now if, in fact, she hadn't followed us right. to the camp. Right. Yeah, because looking him in the face and lying about what's happening around them. That's not really beautiful. That's actually, no, it's, it's exactly what a fascist does. Right. It's saying, don't believe what you're experiencing. Believe what I tell you. You're so woke, Dan. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. But am, am, I, am I wrong? No, you're, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Because I'm saying that that's, that's the fascism that supposedly he resists. Right, right. He's imposing a, a worldview on his son that has no bearing in his reality. Right, and it's for his own good. And yes, it's his child and he feels responsible for him. But yeah, I think it probably also was never meant to be analyzed to this depth, but no, uh, certainly not. It's hard not to. Dan, does, uh, does life is beautiful. Hold up. <laughs> well, yeah, I, this is one of the movies that, I mean, that has been my choice that I feel most, uh, the most complex about Yeah, looking back because the movie has problems. And ultimately, am I glad it's made rather than never having been made? Yes, I'm glad that this movie exists and that it's part of the film canon. I hold fond feelings yeah. for this movie. I think it was a very interesting Oscar player. 
that year. Um, best actor was very interesting without um, Benini. Who would have been there? I, like Jim Carrey wasn't in the roster. I think he could have won had he been nominated because there was a lot of split support that would have led to a Roberto Benini win. Yeah. I don't know if people just wanted to see him on the stage a second time or what. Right. Uh, I and For all of my complicated and negative feelings, oddly enough, the very, very end when he's reunited, the kids reunited with his mom, Mm-hmm. And he says, this is the sacrifice my father made for me. It actually affected me emotionally. I actually. Oh, that. Got yeah, that's a huge tearjerker for me. Which is weird because I felt like so much of what I had just watched was unsuccessful. But the cumulative effect was still uh, moving to me. Yeah. There's something about the translation there where it it's it's a clunky translation. And he speaks in a way that no one speaking English would ever speak. And to me, that hits hard because I feel like I have been given an insight into the original language and into the heart of the character yeah. a little more than a translation allows you. Like when he's saying like one a thousand points to laugh like crazy about, you know, nobody speaks like that. Right. You know, you're 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 getting an insight to the to the heart language of the character and he is completely joyful and I mean, thank God by coincidence, he's able to find his mother in this crowd of people who have wandered out of this camp and they they will be together and presumably have a okay life after this. And yeah, it, it, it just that that's the point where I would always cry yeah. if not in other places in this. Intellectually, world. it still upsets me because it's such a trite little TV show wrap up on the Holocaust, but emotionally right. it did affect me. And the actors just have this look of such joy that's caught in the last kind of frozen shot that you just, I just so feel for them that what that, what they've survived though, the movie glosses over it. When you think of the reality of characters like that, if indeed a mother who'd been separated from her five-year-old managed to get out of one of those camps alive. And then they were reunited right. on the road out of town. Yeah. Can you imagine what that would have meant? Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So I have to say, I'm not sorry this movie exists either. I, it's certainly interesting to revisit. It'll be interesting as time goes on to, to spend time with things like this again. Steven Spielberg famously not a fan of this movie. <laughs> Almost makes me want to oh, like it more, but is that right? <laughs> How interesting it was it was also in for best picture that year back when there were only 5. Yeah. And when every vote counts <laughs> in a popular vote right. who who if not for life is beautiful were there I mean probably life is beautiful voters would have gone for Shakespeare in love but you never know. Yeah. Was this the same year as Saving Private Ryan or was that the next year? Mhm. Yeah. Year. So Saving Private Ryan was uh presumably the front runner that year and Spielberg did win best director and then um, best pick nominees, Shakespeare in love, Elizabeth life is beautiful. um, Private Ryan and the thin red line. Oh, wow. Any uh, final thoughts on life is beautiful, Dan? No, I gave, I gave all my thoughts. Oh, I I always write down a line or two that I liked. I did like when he asked the hat man, what are your politics? And he yelled at the kids and said, Benito. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't I didn't pick up on that 20 years ago. <laughs> Fun times. All right. Well, I think my pick for next time is Tree of Life. Oh, 
could. I've wanted to see it, and I just never have. So here's your chance. There is a a Criterion director's cut with 50 additional minutes. I'm not asking you to watch Ooh. that. Yeah, I'm not going to watch that. You can give me the summary of what I yeah, missed. No, yeah, it's, it's fine. Uh, I've watched it. It's interesting, but it doesn't make any kind of major difference. In fact, it's harder to get through. So watch the, the standard version, which is still quite long. How how long is the standard version? I think it's, I think it's under three hours, but close to three hours. If that's a problem, we can, oh, I, I can need to, it. no, it's great. I and 50 extra minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's three, eight. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I will need to plan my evening accordingly to make Sorry, sure that we can I do have... like Oliver and company or something. If you'd like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, in, in this stage of life, I yeah. just come home and I'm really relaxed and I'm falling asleep at like 8 PM. <laughs> and so yeah. turning on a movie at eight, that's three right. hours is just not a good not a good plan for success. Yeah. I very much look forward to hearing uh, your reactions and thoughts. Oh, I look forward to seeing it. Well, gang, um, we have been Dan and Josh. This has been Holds Up, the podcast. You can follow us both on Twitter. You can follow the show at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. You can follow us on Letterboxd. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. I need a script for these intros and outros. And uh, we'll, we'll check you out next time. Bye, Dan. Bye. I think, too, with our choices, I, I think whatever the Venn diagram of the stuff that we both like, I think we're both picking from that. Yeah. Whereas I think if either of us picked something that we knew was well out of the other's wheelhouse, right. which we've not really done. Maybe we need to ease into that a little bit or, or you know, dole it out over time. Yeah. But um, I already made you watch Brazil again. So I've been probably going easy on you. Well, I mean, you watched American Beauty and came to the right conclusion this time. So, true. Yeah, I don't know what my what my genre would be of something that you'd hate, but I'm sure I could come up with something. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's easy, but I don't care about revisiting Star Wars or Transformers. Right. I, don't, I don't need to do that. So I'm not avoiding them secretly wishing I could. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that's more interesting for adults to talk about. So. And I think that if we have something to pick, it's because it meant something to us at one time or we thought it was good at one time, you know, has some sort of staying power. So it must have something right. going for it that somebody else could see. Whereas, you know, hey, watch this shitty movie. Right. Uh, that's unlikely. Yeah.